You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Jewish Matters podcast, and we're in our Extraordinary Jewish Personality series, and tonight we'll be talking about Ava Kovner, the first Avenger. And this extraordinary story for me is one of the most amazing to come out of the Shoah, out of the Holocaust, to come out of an incredibly tumultuous period of Jewish history. And Abba Kovner will play a crucial role in fighting in the ghettos of Europe uh, against the Germans, fighting then afterwards in the forest with the partisans, being uh, involved in getting Jews to Palestine and the illegal immigration, uh, having a key role in the War of Independence for Israel, and the most mysterious chapter, and the one perhaps we're going to highlight, is the role he played as an avenger after the war against the Nazis. So Abba Kovna was forged in the ghetto of Vilna. His family was a Zionist family who tried to emigrate to Palestine and was stopped by World War I. But she... Um, he was part of the uh, Zionist Youth Guard, and, uh, but that really didn't prepare him for the task that would be in front of him. And I'd like to paint the scenario, the scene of the ghettos in Eastern Europe uh, during the Second World War and the Nazi strategy, because it's really part of understanding the Jewish resistance. So in Vilna, where there had been a population of 80,000 Jews, 30,000 by 1941 were deported into the ghetto, which was the old Jewish community, which usually housed around 1,000 people. Now there were 30,000 there. And writing to their family, of course, they knew the mail was censored. So some of the inhabitants of the ghetto would say that we are eating as if it's Yom Kippur. We are dressed like it's Purim. And we are... um, living uh, like it's Sukkot. So virtually nothing to eat, dressed in rags, and living in temporary dwellings. So this was uh, the predicament of the Jews in the ghetto. And uh, the Nazi strategy was to put Jews in charge of the ghetto. And this was for many different reasons. Uh, It would reassure the Jews that there was someone at the top with their self-interest in mind, even though they often worked with the Nazis, and we'll see uh, how, that, how that happened and what it meant. Um, they also did it uh, to turn Jews against Jews and really to co-opt Jews to help in their efforts. And Jacob Gens, who was put in charge of the ghetto in Vilna, Vilna, remember, was considered the Jerusalem of Lithuania. It was a thriving Jewish community with every segment of the Jewish community, from Zionists to socialist communists, uh, ultra-Orthodox, pious rabbis, religious Zionists, you name it, they were there. And Gantz had served in the Lithuanian army. He had risen up in the ranks, and when he was decommissioned, he circled in very high circles in Lithuania. Now, in the army, he did have some Jewish identity, He got Jewish soldiers dispensed from going to church. But after he left the army, he wound up marrying a non-Jewish woman. And uh, he, uh, as the Jews were being deported to the ghetto, 
He was offered to flee by very high connected people. He actually turned down their offer and said, no, I'm going with my people. And he took the position to run the Jewish community there, the Judenrat, as it was called, in order to help his people. Very noble intentions, but we'll see with disastrous results. Um, Abba Kovner, in contrast, as we said, came from a very idealistic family, a very Jewish family, um, a Zionist one. He was, his father wanted him to pursue a profession, but he was an artist. And what's so interesting and somewhat puzzling is he was a poet, and there are a number of significant Jewish personalities in resistance movements who led uh, military-style uprisings who were artists. Uh, Abba Kovner, Avram Stern of the famous uh, Stern Gang, and who fought against the British, and were the most extreme group to carry out terrorist acts against the British and the Arabs. Uh, Hannah Shenish, who we'll speak about in a few weeks, uh, the Jewish heroine, who is also a poet. And you would think that the poetic personality would not be, uh, would not be amenable to, uh, would not work uh, with someone who was called to fight and to be violent and to stand up. And yet we see that somehow the two did go in hand, perhaps, one friend suggested to me, that because of their sensitivity, they were even more outraged and driven for the cause of righteousness. Abba Kovner also, given his way with words, was an incredible, was a charismatic personality, an inspiring speaker and writer, and yet at the same time, a bit of a loner, which does lend itself to that type of leadership. So the Jews were deported to the ghetto and the Nazis would constantly be asking Gens, we need a thousand Jews for a labor camp, we're going to resettle a few thousand Jews here, and it was up to the Judenrat to gather those Jews. They would ask for volunteers, they would uh, conscript people, tell them, uh, you know, you're going to have a better life in the East. And one day, uh, and Gens would even bargain with the Nazis. He wanted to send out 3,000 Jews, make it 2,500, sometimes successfully. And uh, at one uh, incident, one day, there was a young girl who was found stumbling around in the forest, naked, bruised, and battered, and in shock. And when they brought her back and cleaned her up and talked to her, she told them that these Jews who were sent to the East were not being sent to the East. They were being sent to the Polar Forest outside of Vilna and being executed in killing fields and in trenches. And she had survived, crawled out from under the bodies and came back to tell this. Now, they thought she was crazy. They put her in the hospital. And when she kept insisting, Gant said to her, you know, it's all right, it's fine, you know, I don't know whether what you're telling or not, but don't tell it to anyone. When Abba Kovner heard about this, he arranged to meet her, he went into the hospital, and upon hearing it, he knew what was happening. And somehow he had the insight to know that this wasn't just an isolated incident in Vilna. Now, as we know, the, the German, the Nazis had started in the early 1930s, 
the Nuremberg Laws in 1936. They had invaded Poland. They had activated killing groups. And yet, many of the Jews still either hadn't heard, or if they heard rumors, didn't want to believe them. And Kovner was the opposite. He somehow had the insight, had the prescience to know that this wasn't just an isolated city or an isolated ghetto. And he, from the descriptions of their methods, he knew this was a killing machine, which was going to rage across Europe. And he told uh, that he then knew he had to do something. So he gathered the young people in the ghetto, people like him, late teens, early 20s. He brought them all on a New Year's Eve, ironically, to the Judenrat. If they knew, of course, he was recruiting partisan fighters, they would have not let him use the room. But under the guise of a New Year's party, they all got together. They heard the Germans partying outside the ghetto through the windows. And there he told the story of Sarah, who had been found, of the killing fields. They'd all had relatives, even close ones or parents, siblings who had gone east. And he told them the harsh truth. They are all dead. And then he said to them, and this is what he said, how were they going to react? Were they going to flee? Were they going to hold on as long as they could? And he said this to them. He said, we must settle our accounts with our consciences now and not in the future. The extermination of thousands is a prelude to the extermination of millions. Therefore, flight to another place is an illusion. The young will flee, leaving behind the old and the children who are doomed for destruction. Is there a chance for rescue? No. Is there a way out? Yes. Revolt and armed self-defense. This is the only way which promised any dignity to our people. And he said, the Zionists have said, Europe is not our problem. We're looking to build a future in Israel. And he said to them, that's not the answer, because what will you answer a child? What will you answer a child when they ask you, where were you during the war? And you're going to tell them you fled? So, of that group, he gathered a core of 150 young people who were ready to fight the Nazis in the ghetto. By now, only 17,000 Jews had been, were left in the ghetto. And they sent couriers out to other ghettos, informing them of what was happening in the forest, informing them of the killing fields. And he said uh, the other groups in the ghetto reached out to them. There were the hardcore communists, and uh, there were the uh, Zionists, like him. There was the Beitar, who were the, uh, the more right-wing Zionists. And they all came together, and he said, Hitler has finally made us one people. That's what Abba Kovner said. Now, people asked, where are we going to get guns? How are we going to run this revolution, run this revolt? And when he met with the head of the communists, he pulled out a gun, put a Polish gun onto the... And he said, where did you get that? And he said, there's lots of guns. You just have to steal it from the Germans. So they prepared. They mapped out all the sewers, going three levels down below the city streets and the basements. 
They bought weapons, smuggled them in in coffins, couriers, piece by piece. There's a German officer, Schmidt, Anton Schmidt, who joined their cause, saving many partisans and still staying in the army. There was the nun at the convent where Kovner had been hiding outside the city before he came back into the ghetto, who brought him grenades and they trained. By late 1942, the Germans realized they needed more labor. So the deportation stopped. Gans told them, look, everything is fine. Everything is, uh, is stable. They formed theaters, book clubs, libraries. He was dedicated to normalizing life in the ghetto until this had passed over. Uh, of course, Kovner knew that this was just a temporary reprieve and that they were all going to wind up in the forest. And he said, uh, he quoted Churchill on this policy of appeasement of the Germans and working with them, who said, everyone thinks that if they feed the crocodile, they will, the crocodile will eat them last. That's the way he viewed um, cooperation with the Germans. So the first actions they did were outside the ghetto. They ran actions in, uh, against the train tracks, bombing bridges. And the first one, they bombed the bridge as the train was going over. 200 German soldiers were killed. And they had to do it this way because otherwise the Nazis would retaliate against them in the desert. But uh, the uh, hold on deportations was short-lived. The Germans started deporting Jews again. They started deporting neighboring towns. And against the head of the Jewish head of the ghetto, even sent Jewish policemen to help him deport the towns in Oshrenko. Now, why he did this? Did he still really believe that they were being just sent east? It's not clear. But his view was, don't upset the cart. And when he, uh, when he was being pressed to hand over more and more Jews to the Nazis and couldn't get volunteers, uh, Manus, the German Nazi, may his name be blotted out, said to him, either you can do it or I can do it. And if I do it, it'll be a lot uglier. So he continued, he continued. But finally, he got to the point where uh, people were no longer volunteering. And the Germans got word that the communist leader Wittenstein was hiding in the ghetto. And as he was taken out in chains, uh, the Jewish partisans jumped the German soldiers, fled with him and put him into hiding. And they turned to Gens. Gens turned to Kovner and said, you have to hand him over. And Kovner, of course, would totally refuse to hand a Jew over. This was not his way. And so uh, Gens said, if you don't, the Germans are going to start killing us. They're going to, who knows what will happen. And Wittenstein himself handed himself over and took a cyanide pill in the prison that night and took his life. But Kovner sent out a letter to those who were left in the ghetto. And he said to him, the cooperation with the Germans has only led to the killing fields in the forest, in the Ponar forest. He said, join me in revolt, rise up. Now by this time, uh, the story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising had already happened. Had they heard about it? It's not clear. But what it is clear is, that when they sent out word to other ghettos, telling them what was happening, calling them to rise up, 
Kovner was one of the inspirations for the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. But when he called on his own people, they were not there. They did not come forth. He only had his corps of fighters. And in fact, when Wittenstein was hiding and the Jews in the ghetto were afraid of Nazi reprivals, the crowds, the mobs turned on Kovner and started uh, fighting with the partisans to make them give Wittenstein over. And he was very soured with the Jewish ghetto and he saw that this would not lead anywhere. In a last fight, when the Germans came in to grab more people, they staged an ambush, but even there, someone had denounced them. And the Germans sent only a small patrol up the street. They put bombs in the buildings where the partisans were hiding. They had to run out of the buildings. They did ambush a squadron of 20 Germans, but uh, overall did not really succeed. And at this point, Kovner said, this is it, the ghetto is finished. And he called on his, the last of his fighters who remained to flee the ghetto through the sewers and to join him in the forest with the partisans where they will take up the next stage in their fight against the Nazis because the ghetto was lost, the populace would not rise up with him. And so while he was brave and while he was fearless, he wasn't foolish either. And so uh, they made their way out through the sewers, which in itself was a very harrowing and dangerous action, and made it to the forest. Now, the forests were a whole other world in and of themselves. And uh, the partisan groups which had formed there comprised of different populations. There were Russian soldiers who'd been caught behind the German lines, and in fact, the Russians parachuted in commanders and uh, a steady stream of supplies to help the partisans. Uh, if you've seen the movie Defiance, you have some idea of what it was like. They were in a swamp, in an island on a swamp, dug into bunkers in the ground, and when he finally reunited there, there were some 200 Jewish fighters. They formed their own brigade next to the Lithuanian fighters, and the free Polish fighters, and the Russian fighters. But for the Jewish fighters, it was dangerous on all sides. Even though they had a common enemy with the Nazis, of course we know the Poles, the Lithuanians, and even the Russians to some extent, uh, Poles and Lithuanians were overtly anti-Semitic, and the partisans knew if they crossed, if on a solo mission they crossed a Polish or a Lithuanian uh, partisan, it was fair game. And sometimes they wouldn't return. Sometimes the Jews would return with a new revolver, obviously from the other partisan they had killed who had attacked them. So um, it was not easy. Now, one of the Russian officers, Yeveni, came to Kovner and told them to disband his bunch, of his Jewish brigade, and integrate them into the others. And he refused. He said no knowing that this Russian could even just shoot him on the spot, but he held his ground. He was fearless. And he said, but you're Lithuanian, so go with the Lithuanians. And Kovner said to him, he said, when the Lithuanians came and marched us to the ghetto, uh, sorry, when the Germans came and marched us to the ghetto, the Lithuanians stood there and watched. At that moment, we were not Lithuanian, and now... We, were not, we are not Lithuanian. 
We are Jews who are here to avenge and to bring justice for what has been done to our fellow Jews. And so we have to fight as Jews. Now, for some reason, Yevgeny, the Russian commander, relented. And uh, even though Kovner knew he was very convincing, he suspected there might have been some other motivation. One night, Yevgeny came to the Jewish camp, and they were all sitting around the campfire singing Yiddish songs of Palestine and of Jewish freedom. And he saw tears in Yevgeny's eyes, and he was shocked, and he said, so this Yevgeny is a Jew after all. Now, the story of Abba Kovner and his freedom fighters and his partisans comes from uh, the book The Avengers by Rich Cohen. Rich Cohen, interestingly enough, also wrote Tough Jews, Fathers, Sons, and Gangster Dreams, which I haven't read yet, but I would like to. And Cohen's cousin was Ruska Korzak. Ruska and Vitka Kempner were Kovner's uh, patriots in arms. They lived together, they fought together, they planned together. And on the first mission, Abba sent Vitka out to, to carry out the mission. Why? So the precedent was that the leaders, who were the toughest guys, would send out their girlfriends to prove how tough they were and to prove how tough their girlfriends were. And these Jewish women truly were tough. They fought next to the men, and this was highly unusual for the other partisans. The other partisans maybe had wives, maybe had girlfriends, maybe there were prostitutes in the forest, but women did the house chores. The Jews, the women fought, and they proved themselves uh, very ably. Uh, they also had the advantage of not being suspected if they were caught, um, and they couldn't be revealed by having their pants pulled down as well, of course. But they were just as tough and sometimes even tougher with more composure than the men. So life in the forest was not easy. There was gum disease, scurvy, lice, rickets, and sometimes even real disease. Rizka, uh, his other compatriot, was put in charge of the well-being of the partisans. They would improvise baths in pools where they would dunk heated stones, they boiled up clothes to get rid of lice. They tried to maintain themselves as best they could. And of the 300 Jews who wound up in the forest, like in the Defiant story, only some of them were fighters. Uh, he wouldn't say no to other Jews who were fleeing and who needed uh, to be saved. So unlike the other partisans who would not accept civilians. So they started running missions to blow up uh, trains, uh, once again, Vitka was the first one uh, planting another bomb on the train tracks. Then in a daring mission, they infiltrated back into Vilna, you could imagine, uh, after they had left and were living in the forest. And they successfully blew up the electric works and the waterworks. After the bombs were planted, they regathered in a fur factory where Jews were working and who had, were giving them shelter. And the men said, we're too tired to go back tonight to the forest. We'll sleep here and go make our way tomorrow. The woman said, there might not be a tomorrow. They left that night. The men were never saw, seen again. But the woman had the stamina to keep going. In, by 1944, the Jewish partisans had destroyed 51 trains, hundreds of, train, of trucks, dozens of bridges. 
And uh, if they didn't have any ammunition left, they would pull down electric wires. They would rip up train tracks with their hands. They did what they had to. Eventually, in 1944, Vilna was recaptured by the Germans after a bloody battle and with 80,000 Germans killed. A well-known Russian Jewish reporter met Abba Kovner and did a series of articles about him, about the Jewish partisans. And people came after the war to come meet this Abba Kovner. And what would be now with these partisans? What were they going to do after the war? Where do you go? What do you do after having lived such a life? And of course, his idealism never didn't stop. Now he went back to being a Zionist. He spent the next few months finding refugees, figuring out ways to spirit them to Palestine, what was called the Brecha, the movement to clandestinely get Jews across Europe onto boats and past the British blockades. And he knew that Jews had to get out of Europe. He knew that even though the Germans had lost the war, and even though the Polish had, uh, had been, uh, the, the Polish collaborators had been defeated, that didn't rid Europe of anti-Semitism. And sure enough, after the war in 1946, in Kiese, there was a blood libel and a pogrom, and Jews were killed and slaughtered after the war. So he knew that um, the Jews had to be protected. So the partisans would protect the Jewish refugees fleeing to Palestine. Now, uh, Abba Kovner's uh, close associate, Rizka, was sent to Palestine to tell the story to partisans. And she wound up in Atlit, the British holding camp. She was finally discovered by the Zionist leaders who realized who she were. And she would go around telling them, first of all, they really had not gotten first-hand reports of the scope of the German Nazi atrocities. But when she would speak to them about sending help, and even ben David Ben-Gurion, he told them, we need to send, she said, you need to send envoys to get the displaced people out of Europe. He said, well, you know, they're not all Zionists and we have to build our community here. And she said, after the war, all Jews are Zionists, but his focus was primarily, primarily on Israel, not on the refugees. Abba and Vitka wound up going to Bucharest, where on Passover, and during the Seder, and maybe it was the story of Jewish slavery or the story of Jews being between leaving Egypt and coming to the Promised Land, and the story of the uh, Egyptian army being drowned in the, in the sea. But in that fateful evening, they decided we need to take revenge upon the Germans. And Abba would later, later say, the destruction was not around us, it was within us. We didn't imagine we could return to life, that we had a right to have families, to get up and go to work as if it, count, if it counts with the Germans had not been settled. He didn't want to hunt Nazis individually like some had done, or even didn't approve of the trials. He felt that was giving the Germans too much dignity by giving them personal recognition of what they had done. He had a much grander scheme. And his scheme was to take vengeance in Germany 
with six million German lives. Plan A was to be carried out by poisoning the water system, and with his corps of 50 patriots who were partisans who were still with him and who were on board for this, they would spread out to different cities, significant ones like Nuremberg and uh, the ones near the death counts, Dachau and uh, Munich, and they would find jobs with the waterworks and poison the water. So, but he needed more infrastructure to carry out his plan. The men were sent to Europe to go undercover, and he went and joined up with the Jewish Legion. The Jewish Legion were Palestinian Jews who had volunteered to fight with the British, and the British finally relented and allowed 5,000 Jewish volunteers to serve fighting the Nazis. They had their own brigade, their own insignia with the Star of David, and seeing this was like something out of a dream for Kovna and his, uh, and his close associates. And so he went to meet up with them in Romania and told them about his plan. And they kind of thought he was crazy. Uh, plan B would be, if that didn't work, to poison uh, the Nazi officers being held in special camps. That was his plan B. And so um, when he was sitting at night with the Jewish Legion soldiers, he quoted Psalm 94, saying, He will repay them for their iniquity and wipe them out of their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. He saw this as a biblical justice. So, they told him, go to Palestine and maybe you'll get more support there. So he went successfully into Palestine and met with Jewish leaders there. And their reaction was the same. You're crazy. You're not going to be able to pull this off. We can't do such a thing. Interestingly enough, the one who responded to him was Chaim Weizmann. And Chaim Weizmann was always known as the one who had cooperated most with the British in Palestine. And by then he'd gotten somewhat marginalized by the David Ben-Gurion, who was much more vigilant. Weizmann was never in favor of declaring a Jewish state. He wasn't in favor of the Haganah and the Palmach fighting clandestinely against the British. Yet he said to Kovner, if I were you, having lived as you have lived, I would do what you will do. And he gave him the name of a chemist, and Kovner got two bottles of poison, got on a boat for Europe, and when it stopped and landed in Alexandria, Egypt, he heard on the loudspeaker the captain calling the name, which was in fact his forged name, and he immediately uh, suspected something was up. He went to his room, took the bottles of poison, poured one over the side, and then hesitated on the second one. And he gave it to one of his fellow Jewish Legion soldiers, gave him the address and a note for Vitka in Paris and went to the captain. And sure enough, he was arrested. Who had denounced him, he was never sure, but some people speculated might have gone to the highest levels of the Jewish leadership in Palestine because they were trying to establish a Jewish state. It wouldn't be good PR to have Jews killing Germans after the war in mass numbers. So um, the note arrived to Vitka. The note said, arrested, 
move to plan B. And plan B had planted five uh, of the partisans, of the Avengers, in five different cities where the German, the camps holding the Nazi officers were. And of the five, uh, one of them had been, the other four were Holocaust survivors. And what Witka quickly saw is they weren't equipped to be able to carry out this clandestine operation, to be living back in Germany undercover, to have to deal with confronting Germany itself. And, uh, but there was one of them who had been a fighter with Abba in the forest. And he was in Nuremberg. And he was going to be activated for Plan B. He worked, had gotten a job in the bakery for the camp, which was called Stalag 13, ironically enough. Um, and uh, he had, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the show, Hogan's Heroes, was it? Uh, who were in a Nazi, prisons of war in a Nazi camp. And a uh, very controversial show, which kind of um, made a joke out of the Nazis. Uh, you can look it up, TV show, and I think they called it Stalag 13. But um, the camp they were in. But uh, they were held in this camp, and every morning they made 6,000 loaves of bread, which were then delivered by truck and distributed throughout the camp. Uh, 6,000 loaves of brown bread and 1,000 loaves of white bread. And the white bread was meant for the American staff and soldiers, so they knew they wouldn't kill them. And he had the whole plan worked out. He had tamed some arsenic. And one morning, with two of his helpers, they painted the arsenic, which was invisible and didn't smell, onto the breads and fled the country. And uh, the New York Times headline the next day said 2,238 uh, Nazis poisoned in plot. How many actually died, it was never clear. The Americans claimed none died, although some people believe they just did that to cover up uh, the fact that they hadn't protected these Nazis, uh, not protected them, but held them uh, until it was decided how they were to be judged. Um, and as we mentioned, the four other teams did not succeed. Over the next four months in a British prison, Abba Kovner would undergo a transformation. And he somehow, in that period, let go of his hatred and his vengeance, his desire for vengeance, and his thoughts started turning towards Palestine. Now, he knew that Rizka was already there. He had seen her when he was there. And even though he didn't see a lot of the country, somehow it planted a seed. And she had moved to a kibbutz, a young guard kibbutz on the coast. And when Abba was released through connections, uh, because the Jewish leadership wanted him, uh, his plan foiled, but uh, only derailed. They didn't want him locked up forever. So he came to Israel and lived on the kibbutz south of Haifa, 50 miles south of Haifa, where he hoped to bring the rest of his avengers and partisans. And when some of them said, what is the next plan? What is the next plan for vengeance? They wanted to go back to Germany. He realized that that window had closed 
the chaos which had reigned in Germany was no longer there. And he said to them a very striking line. He said, you can fight for your revenge here. And here you will fight for the future, not for the past. And of course he meant in the Israel War of Independence. The Union had voted for a partition plan. The Haganah was forming an army. And Abba was recruited to be an officer to train and inspire the young new soldiers of the Givati Brigade. He would quote to them what the Arabs said they were going to do to exterminate the Jews and presented with the bleak reality, but he said, we didn't ask for this war, but we will finish it. And so in the chapter, final chapter of his life of wars, he fought and helped in the war effort in the Israeli War of Independence. And finally, after the war, he could finally settle down with Vitka in the kibbutz. Rizka also settled there and she married someone else. And Abba Kovner went on to found the Diaspora Museum because he felt like he had honored the memory of those who were lost. But it wasn't just about grieving over the Shoah. He said, we have to know the richness of the culture and the life before the war to see the significance, the dreaded significance of the destruction of Eastern European Jewry. And so he founded the Diaspora Museum, which still exists to this day. He went on to become one of the most recognized poets in Israel, receiving the Israel Prize in 1970. And they say that Abba Kovner, uh, in a sense, his life was mythical. Uh, leading the partisans uh, and the fighters, the revolt in the Vilna ghetto, then leading the partisans fighting in the forest against the Nazis, then running a clandestine a ven vengeance operation against the Nazis and killing Nazi officers, and then finally fighting for the Israel War of Independence. And he is a personality who can inspire us in his dedication to the Jewish people, his fearlessness for the Jewish people. And we ask again, what makes a hero? And today in Israel, there are many heroes, there are many young men and women who are there putting their lives on the line for the Jewish people. And what brings a person to this? Greatness of spirit. And I leave you with this touching, powerful poem by Abba Kovna. They say he wasn't religious, he was a secular Zionist, but be you be the judge after we hear his words. This poem is entitled, Death is Not to Be Preferred. When leading a band of harried fighters or standing face to face with the enemy, holding out in a siege and standing alone on the ramparts, he never said death is to be preferred, that life is negotiable. Anxious, frightened by severe privations, he never asked anything of Almighty God but to grant him favor and ease his pain when he leads the congregation in communal prayer and forgive our sins in love and joy and gladness and peace, O oh God, mighty and awesome. Have a good evening, everyone. On Sunday, we continue our Jewish spirituality podcast. Uh, this week, we are moving on to finding our life purpose. And uh, join us for that at 8 p.m. 
Next week at this time, 8 p.m. on Wednesday, we'll be talking about another exceptional Jewish personality, Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, uh, the singing rabbi. So please join us then and have a good evening.